All right, so tonight we want to talk about education. Now, education isn't a myth, of course. It exists in theory. Um, yeah, it's the practice that gets tricky. One big thing we struggle with is we have limited clarity on what education means, what it's for, what is it about. And, and, and one way to think about this, not the only way, but I think one way to think about this to help us clarify it is to look back at the origins of this. Where does it come from? Of course, people have always learned things. This is, you know, if you didn't learn anything, you died. So we, we, we're learners. Lots of animals learn things or, or they just you wouldn't thrive. But when you get the advent of literacy, which, so we're going back about 6,000 years, when you get the advent of literacy, you hit this weird new element. Um, and, and the way this evolves is pretty clear. In almost every case, almost all early writing is record keeping. And almost all the record keeping is, basically it's a sort of a tax system, but it's done by the temples. So you would make donations um, to the temples, and the temples wanted to keep records. So if you brought in 20 bushels of rye, they needed a way to know that they had 20 bushels of rye. And so the earliest examples, or many of the earliest examples of writing that we have is this sort of rudimentary record-keeping system. Now, roughly speaking, the day after they invented that, one of the scribes who was doing the record keeping realized that if I'm the only one who can read the record, I'm in business. And, they, and so the power, the power that was invested in education became clear literally, like I guess I think it took about a day. Somebody's like, oh, writing's cool. Ho, ho. <laughs> oh, you, you gave us 20, uh, four bushels of wheat, right? Oh, that was five, two rams that came through the door. You know, it was a very, you know, whoever keeps the records has a great deal of power. Now, it's not the only kind of power. There are many kinds of power. But it was sort of a new kind of power. Now, the day after one of the priestly scribes worked out that being able to write down these things was really good, Someone in the palace, in the imperial throne room, realized that if only the priests are writing things down, we're in trouble. <laughs> and this kicked off a 5,000-year battle of who gets educated, what kind of education do they get, and what is the education for? So historically, this is, I mean, literally, this comes almost immediately. So in the ancient world, if we look at the uh, Sumerian um, tradition, the priests seem to have had the initial run with the record keeping, but then the palace quickly recognized that, ooh, you don't want just the priests to be able to record things and send letters and read letters. So they started to train their eunuchs and household servants so now you have scribes who have the capacity to read and write. And so who gets the literate people? Who's keeping the records? Who's writing them down? Excellent. This becomes a competition. You want your people in control, not their people. And then one day, so that, I think like I said, the first day you got writing. The second day the priest works out, that's great. The third day... Someone in the palace realizes that's not so great. They need some of those people too. The fourth day, the emperor or the king or the tyrant or whomever is dictating a letter to someone because he can't write, but the scribe can write. And all of the court is there and he says, send a letter to those people over there and tell them we're going to slit their throats. And some scribe went, ah, <clears throat> You know, your majesty, God, with all due total respect, please don't kill me. We should say we're going to kick them in the face. That's better than slit your throat. And the majesty went, yeah, that's a great idea. And then all the people in the court went, oh, the literacy is not just, the literate person is not just the servant like all the other servants. He, and almost invariably a he for about 4,000 more years, um, <laughs> he 
has control over the language, gets to make suggestions, gets to interpret things the way that they want to interpret them. Uh, uh, an extreme example of this is when Napoleon was negotiating with a Tsar of Russia about a treaty during the Napoleonic Wars. Um, one guy, Talleyrand, spoke Russian and French um, fluently, and so he wrote the entire treaty and did all the translation back and forth. So he got the treaty he wanted because he was writing it both ways. He said, oh, no, no, this is what this means, and we'll write it that way. They're going to Russian and do it. And so he wrote the treaty. It was his treaty, exactly how not, not what the Tsar wanted, not what Napoleon wanted, what Talleyrand wanted. Um, there's a famous instance of this, but the incredible power that got conferred onto scribes. And so this, you, get, you see this in the rise of viziers. In the Persian culture, this is the vizier. You have the pasha, or, the, or the, 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 the king, I mean, various names for this. In his council, you had the viziers. These are generally not noble people, but extraordinarily well-educated, relative to the times, and extremely powerful. And they used the viziers to hold off the aristocracy. Because traditionally, who advised the vizier, I mean, who advised the pasha, was the other aristocrats. But, ah, kings and aristocrats, they have different goals in mind. And so it started this sort of educational arms race. If I'm the king, I want to corral all the people and all the scribes to work for me and keep them from working for other people. If you're the church, the, the priests, you want to do the same thing. If you're an aristocratic family, you want your people to be able to read because, A, you, don't, you, you also realize you can't always trust your scribes, that sometimes bureaucrats don't do things exactly the way you tell them, um, that, that these, these, you know, how things get translated matters, and this whole war gets kicked off. In the Confucius tradition, in the Chinese tradition, you had the Confucius scholars, very highly educated, but who did they work for? In theory, they worked for the imperial throne, for the emperor. In practice, they seemed really to work for themselves. They had their ideas, and, and the emperor at times was virtually a captive of the Confucius hierarchy, the mandarins. And so, again, the, the, many of the emperors turned towards educated eunuchs to be their bulwark against the Confucians because they had different ideas of education and the eunuchs were dedicated to the emperor whereas the Confucians seemed to be dedicated to the mandrenate. And so they had all these internal power struggles. But this notion that uh, power comes with education is almost immediately obvious to everybody who participates. Uh, in ancient uh, uh, Egypt, we have scrolls from scribes who are saying things like, wow, it's great to be a scribe because I don't have to go out in the field and pick you know, fruit, and I don't have to go off to war and get stabbed with a spear. Being a scribe is great. Right? But the early, when you're working with tyranny, dictatorships, the priesthood, the capacity of education is directed towards their ends. Not your ends, their ends. Now, this is called indoctrination. This is not education per se, in theory, or sort of one end of education. We're going to give you the skills we want you to have so that you'll do what we want you to do in the way we do it. The problem with this is it never always works out that neatly. And roughly the time you get writing around for like the fifth day after writing was invented, give or take, Someone, some scribe with time to kill and a bunch of wine went, ah, I'm going to write the Epic of Gilgamesh. <laughs> or I'm uh, Zoroaster, I'm going to wander in the desert and come out and, you know, write the Avesti. Right? It's going to be great. And literature comes, you know, pretty much right on the heels of this. So for, for what reason? Well, it just turns out that people who learn to read and write like reading and writing apparently for its own sake. It's just fun. It's just enjoyable. And so then you get this weird offshoot of sort of self-expression, creativity, joy, pleasure. Now this is closer to the true sense of education, which, which comes from the Latin. Some debate on exactly what it means, but like to draw out, to lead out, 
It may even have the same root as to water or nurture like a plant. But indoctrination means to force something into somebody. Education means to take what is inside of them and bring it out. And, and so on one hand, you have this incredibly powerful tool. And when you get an education, there is an amount of power with that. But which way is it going to go? Who controls the power? What is the purpose of the power? And this is the debate that's been running again for at least 5,000 years. Like I said, like two days after writing was invented, this debate got underway. A key moment in this pr process was the Greek world, as again, so often is the case. The Greeks kicked this off and changed things up to a big degree because they were sort of the first society that didn't have just a tyrant or a couple of nobles. So you have a tyranny, which is just a dictatorship. You have an aristocracy, which is the idea of the rule of the best. Aristo is the best uh, uh, crossy is ruled by. Um, democracy, ruled by the people, the demos. And then oligarchy, uh, which you know, oleg just means uh, rich bastards, really. It just means, it's just, you know, it, it's just a oligarchy ruled by the rich dudes. You know, it's just means, it just means a small group of, of powerful people, not necessarily the aristocracy. It usually is just not distinct from an aristocracy, which is usually uh, inherited. So oligarchy had existed, aristocracies had existed, tyrannies had existed, but then we get democracy. And Greek democracy, not a huge franchise, right? Rich citizens, rich male citizens is, is really what their democracy was primarily, although it varied dramatically. Um, but in this instance, the idea is like, well, what is education for now? Because they aren't scribes. All of a sudden, you had a large pool of potential rulers. And remember, in ancient Greece, many of the offices were filled by lot. So they, you know, if you're just drawing lots to see who gets an office, you want everybody to be pretty good. You're like, we need you to understand things, and we want it to go well for you. But because they were essentially, they were like a really large aristocracy, the idea of education was we want to bring out the best that's in you. Calisthenics, beautiful strength, right? Physical beauty, physical capacity, a capacity to reason, capacity to uh, uh, convince your fellow citizens, but most importantly, the capacity to distinguish good from evil. The capacity to look inside yourself, and they thought this is an internal issue, and make a judgment about the nature of the world that was accurate. And they thought, if we educate you to be the best possible version of yourself, you will do good by necessity. You won't be able to help yourself. So they couldn't really indoctrinate them because they were the people with all the money and the power to begin with. Um, so it became this very much different notion of, of communal. They didn't have any system of education. It was all by private tutors and public forums and uh, tra traveling uh, teachers. It was all very uh, grab bag, we would say. Turned out it worked pretty well in some ways. Um, but it changed the notion of what education could be for. Now the power really became distributed of education. It became not just a capacity to become powerful within the hierarchy of the king, I'm the great vizier, but to have it as a path to being the king yourself or the, or the closest thing you could to that, which would be an, a, a, the key elected officials in the, in the Greek or Athenian city-state, which is a very big change. Um, and so the emphasis went from indoctrination to the other end of it, which was, how do we bring out what's best? And they didn't agree on this at all. They had a hundred different approaches. They had no idea what they were supposed to do, but everybody agreed that was the goal. If we just make the best possible person we can, that's the best thing for the state. So make yourself healthy, wise, literate, um, and civic-minded, and good things will happen. Um, that concept was picked up by the Romans, to a limited degree, 
to, by Cicero to an incredible degree. And Cicero was sort of the, one of the first guys who said, look, this is what the Greeks were doing. Let's sort of develop this idea of the humanist education, what we call the humanist education. Cicero coined that word. This was one of his neologisms. He made up the idea of the humanist education. The Greeks didn't have it, they just did it. Cicero looks back and says, I like this, this, and this. We'll call that a humanist education. Uh, rhetoric, language, we'll look at the key elements of this. But he sort of codifies it. He says, this is what literacy to be educated should be. And since in the Roman world we were veering back towards tyranny, dictatorship, imperial household, it, it was very conflicted. Do you train your, your sons, primarily sons, to be good followers of the emperor, or do you train them for the potential to off the emperor and become emperor themselves? <laughs> right? And notice that's a very different kind of education. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is not the same thing. By the way, uh, just as an example of this, everybody says, oh, you know, go and get a tech education. We're going to talk about this. Because look at all the money that's in tech, blah, blah. Steve Jobs went to an art college. Right? So it turns out we don't want to, don't train people to be Steve Jobs. No, train people to work for Steve Jobs. Yes. See, that's, that's, a, that's the kind of distinction to think about. Which way is the power directed? Who gets it? What does it mean? So this idea of the human, well, then you get sort of the collapse of the Roman Empire. Things look a little ugly uh, in Europe. We'll, we'll switch over to the European scene. Although, again, there's similar tensions in, in the Confucius tradition in China and in the Persian tradition. So this is not just the Western tradition. But if we come into the United States, the next place we want to stop is the humanist education in uh, Europe, which this picks off with the Renaissance famously. And it is private tutors in private homes. This is the aristocracy, private schools, private tutors the rich people, not for the peasants down in the dirt. But it had three key elements taken from Cicero. One was grammar, study of reading, writing, and vocabulary, particularly Latin and Greek. They wanted you to read Latin and Greek because all of the best works were written in Latin and Greek. And the idea is if you read the best works in the original language, it would improve you. You would be a better human being. Logic, in specific, Aristotle's logic. But the logic was deployed to examine everything. So they, they really ran them through their paces on like, is this an apple? Is this apple red? If I hit you with this apple, does it hurt? You know, it's just sort of this, you know, you argue every side. The years of training in logical argumentation, which sometimes leads to mind-numbing hair splitting, like you're like, oh, some of these texts will kill you. But often through this, this develop this capacity for critical analysis of everything. <laughs> And then rhetoric was just the capacity to speak and write um, the concepts that you were analyzing and reading and the world around you, and to communicate that, to argue it, to convince your fellow citizens. Basically, that's all that education was. If you had that, you were educated. If you did not have this, you were not educated. It's, it's, it's sort of a simple on-off. Anything you did beyond that was sort of bonus points. You know, you didn't, have to, you didn't have to do anything more to be educated. But you might go into the church, you might become a doctor, you might become a lawyer. Those were basically the three fields that were available. Most everybody went to the church. Um, and that was sort of the educational scene. This is where Oxford, lots of church colleges in Cambridge comes from. You know, these are religious institutions that had medical and, and legal parts to them. The Jesuits rise out of this tradition, which we'll talk about briefly here. Um, and then you get, well, we'll go to the Protestant Reformation now. Um, Protestant Reformation changed things pretty dramatically in many ways, as I mentioned in the talk on religion. But one way was you were supposed to read the Bible. And you were supposed to read the Bible in your vernacular tongue which meant that suddenly mass literacy, not just literacy of the good people, the wealthy people, the privileged people, but of every citizen who has a duty to read the Bible becomes an idea. And, and this, this begins this literacy movement. Of course, the United States, many of the earlier set, early settlers were Puritans. And so they brought this concept with them. They said, we need to have literacy. 
And so immediately in the United States, you begin this bizarre amalgam of educational institutions that we still have with us today. Harvard is established very early. It's a religious institution. Princeton, religious institution. Yale, religious institution. William and Mary, religious institution. The idea is you want to make sure your priests are educated so they get things right. It was also an offshoot of what we talked about last time in religion, of the factionalism. So many different factions that you had to have your priests up to snuff so they could compete with their priests. You had to get it right, and you had to be able to defeat them. Sort of moderately competitive. But you also get the birth of grammar schools, publicly funded. This is by individual towns. Individual townships started doing this, saying, well, we want a lot of the children to be able to go to these schools so they can read the Bible for themselves, often associated with churches, not invariably. Um, and, and so you had this idea of mass education sort of floating around the United States, not organized at this point. Um, and then you had someone like Jefferson, who was probably the first American to, to propose seriously systematic education of everyone at state expense, and this is important. What he meant was every male should receive a few years of school free, three or four, so that they're minimally literate. And then we'll take the best 20% or so of those and let them go for a couple more years, and then we'll take the best 20% of those and let them go a couple more years, and then the very best students from those can then go on to a classical education at state expense. This is a true aristocracy. Because Jefferson's idea was you go out in the countryside, you cull from the citizens the best, Aristo, and you let them get an education so that you aren't throwing away your quality people, while realizing that 90% of people are just not worth it. Right? This is, this is, so on one hand, it's incredibly progressive. On the other hand, it really isn't as progressive as you think. I mean, it was sort of progressive for its time, not that progressive. Um, but that, so these ideas are floating around. But he was not, obviously being Jefferson, not in favor of church education. So you do start getting these kinds of movements rolling. But it's not until you get the Prussian education system as a model that this really takes off. And what happens is in the, the, the Napoleonic Wars, the Germans, well, they weren't the Germans then, the, the Prussians and the Austrians got a good kicking in the, in the teeth. And they thought, wow, we got to fix our system up. Also, because of the Reformation, a lot of the aristocracy in, in, in the Prussian German states, there's all, like 50 of them, it was just a big political mess, a lot of the aristocracy were using Jesuit-trained ministers in their courts. And, and the king of Prussia was pretty convinced that the Jesuits were there to try and lure them back to Catholicism. And because the aristocracy had no love of the king, they were like, hey, we could use the Catholic Church as a counterbalance to the rising power of centralized government. And the Jesuits were like, ooh, that's a great idea. So it wasn't, they weren't just crazy. But again, because a lot of the people who were educated were Jesuits, a lot of the ambassadors, a lot of the teachers, a lot of the scri scribes in these courts were, in fact, Jesuit trained at Jesuit institutions, everyone was suspicious of them, with good reason. They weren't all spies, but only about 90%, it turns out. You know? <laughs> it, was, it, it was you know, sort of the, the, we are suspicious of these people because of that power issue. Who are they working for? Are you working for me? Or are you working for the Catholic Church? Or are you working for the aristocracy? And so Humboldt and people like that came up with this great idea. And they said, let's have, in the key elements of the Prussian education system, free primary schooling for everyone. Everyone. Professional teachers trained in specialized colleges. Now, this is one of the things. It's easy to say everyone should have an education. Okay, where do you get the teachers? Who's going to pay to train the teachers? If you want quality schools with quality teachers, you've got to provide teachers. So he said, well, we better have specialty schools to train teachers. This is all new, by the way. I mean, this is ideas sort of been bubbling around, but they got it organized and got it rolling. Salary. And recognizing teachers as a profession, still a dubious claim in our country. Uh, in, in many countries, teachers are respected. Uh, you will be shocked to hear this, but it's true. Um, it is, it is the, the idea that a teacher is not some 
uh, worthless layabout scoundrel, which was sort of the medieval and late uh, enlightenment idea, very suspicious of teachers. And they didn't pay them. They had no regular salary often. So the notion that you have to pay them and recognize that they're a profession, this was a big idea. Funding to build schools. Well, this means taxes, and as we are well aware, taxes is an evil word. Uh, and so that, so people are like, oh, but if you have schools for students with teachers, hey, you're almost to an education system. Um, supervision at national and classroom level to ensure quality instruction. This is, this is a national organized curriculum, standardized. This is, the, this is the Prussian model at the get-go. We'll see what the Americans come up with an answer, right? Curriculum inculcating a strong national identity, involvement of science and technology. The classical education of grammar, logic, rhetoric had no technology at all. And, and the Germans were some of the first ones to say, you know, it might be good if we sort of studied science. How about that? Natural philosophy, as it was called. And Humboldt, who was a brilliant, brilliant natural philosopher himself, was a big proponent of this. Um, and then secular instruction, which meant no particular religious favoritism. We don't want it because it, you know, the Protestant Catholic thing in Germany is still very fraught at that time. And finally, compulsory. Not that you get to go to school, you have to go to school which is very new. In the history of mankind, the opportunity to go to school had always been a golden ticket. This is your opportunity to rise from nothing, from poverty, from no opportunity, to you could become a vizier. You can't become a noble person, but you could become a vizier. You could become an advisor to a prince. You could become wealthy, relatively speaking. You could be somebody. Education, people starved to get an education, starved their families to provide one of their sons the opportunity to have an education, did all kinds of things that we can't even imagine now. Because it was so rare and so sought after and generally looked at as, you know, again, a golden ticket. But now it's compulsory. And the argument was, here is an opportunity to expand, this is Humboldt basically, to expand your mind, expand your horizons, to more fully realize your full capacity. If someone tries to prevent you from having that opportunity, they're essentially enslaving you. They're warping you. And it is wrong for someone to withhold the opportunity of education from children. It's like when they passed laws that said you can't break kids' arms so they make better beggars or blind them so they can beg. Because they used to do this. They had to pass laws that said, no, you can't blind kids so they make better beggars. Is the intellectual equivalent of this. So again, that indoctrination, freedom, education thing. You have to go, but the reason you have to go is so you have the opportunity to free yourself, to expand your mind to the world of letters, to reason, to history beyond the scope of your immediate environs. But at the same time in the Prussian model, it was so that you made a good citizen to work for the state. Ah, right, so this is, you know, it, this tension is always there. We want, now we're gonna educate our citizens? Ah, but what if the citizens get uppity? Well, you make sure the education includes things like I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. Right, you inculcate that. So that education doesn't steer you in the wrong direction. See the tension? The tension is always there. It's power for whom and for what. Um, and so the, the, the Humboldt model, the Prussian revolutionary, well not revolutionary, the Prussian education model gets picked up um, in, in the United States by a guy called Mann um, and other people, but Mann was one of the, the really big people who pushed this. Um, and so there began in the mid-1850s this struggle to say, hey, let's do this in the United States. And so states began passing compulsory education laws. Often they pass compulsory education laws without having teachers or buildings, which is hilarious. Um, but but they, you know, it's, it's a chicken and egg thing. Okay, Do we get the teachers in the buildings and no students? That makes no sense. Do we make all the students show up where? We don't know with whom to teach them. 
Good idea. You know, we, you, so, but once you get it rolling, right? 1850s, 1860s, 1870s, we're getting, we're getting this ball rolling. Um, but just a little bit, if you look at the chart on the back here, you'll see in 1900, still less than 7% of, of high school age kids are getting a high school education. So that's just a little over 100 years ago, it was below 10%. So even after 50 years of pretty aggressive adoption of the Prussian model and lots of lobbying and lots of taxes, you know, pretty low. We, it hadn't really taken off that strongly yet. Much better than it had been, not quite good. Um, but it carries through at the turn of the century and then you get the sort of debate that develops. And I have the two quotes from you, you get sort of this Dewey the progressive model versus the Taylorites. I call them the Taylorites. It just means the more strict pro progressive, I mean the more strict Prussian model proponents. Um, so if you look at Dewey from the 1920s, this is his idea of education. He was hugely influential as a thinker, not so influential on policy. So if you've heard of Dewey, you may have heard of Dewey. Um, he, he was, again, lots of good ideas, not necessarily that many adopted, but he said, as a society which is mobile and which is full of channels for the distribution of change occurring anywhere, must see to it that its members are educated to personal initiative and adaptability. Otherwise, they'll be overwhelmed by the changes in which they are caught and whose significance or connections they do not perceive. So he wanted initiative. We want people who initiate things on their own, creative, self-expressive, and adaptable. You have the skills and the thinking capacities and the background that allows you to understand and tailor yourself to new situations. Sort of just as a spokesman for the other side, I have this quote, I call them the Taylorites. The, Our schools are in a sense factories in which the raw products, children, are to be shaped and fashioned into products to meet the various demands of life. The specification for manufacturing comes from the demands of the 20th century civilization and is the business of the school to build its pupils according to the specifications laid down. Right? So, I mean, that's pretty clear. You take raw material in the front door, you stick it in a lathe, you turn it for about six years, and then you put it out the other end. Right? And, and this idea has been debated and debated and debated, but it is the same old idea. Education empowers you, liberates you, gives you opportunity and choice. For what? Is it to make yourself as useful for the state as possible, or is it to make yourself as useful for you as possible? Sometimes those may not be in conflict. Sometimes they may be in conflict. But you get these dramatic swings between these implementations. Are we here to make you healthy, wise, to inform you, to give you the tools to think critically, to live the life you want to live? Or are we supposed to prepare you for a career, for a STEM major? Talk about STEM majors and such. Um, this debate, is it hard to answer that? But one thing to note about the United States is we haven't ever really tried to answer it. There's roughly 13 or 14,000 school districts in the United States. Most of them are autonomous. They have their own curriculums, they have their own textbook adoptions, they have their own teaching standards, they have their own schools funded in their own way. Um, and the federal government, if you look at the, at the back there, you'll see um, for K through 12 funding, the federal government provides at most, this is a generous estimate, by the way, 8%. So 92% of funding, or more, comes from local governments, which is why local governments like to have a say in how their schools are run, how they're funded, what kind of programs they have. So when you look at, we're always, you know, the, the, new, the new trend is to compare the United States to other countries. Well, other countries have one curriculum. We have, give or take, 14,000. Other countries fund everything from the federal government out. We fund everything from the local government up. And so it's a, it's a totally, it's, a not, it's an uncomparable system. And, and this is one of the struggles we face. Uh, this came to the fore, by the way, um, in the Sputnik crisis. 
So America, the greatest country in the world, most technologically advanced, the absolute dominant behemoth striding the earth, looked up one day and discovered the Soviets had launched a satellite. This was very demoralizing for the Americans. They're like, holy crap, those tricky bastard Russians are ahead of us. We thought they were ignorant monkeys. We think everybody is ignorant monkeys, by the way, until they launch a satellite. We go, damn. Uh, 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 and so now, now it turns out that the Russians could think. Um, and that means we're going to have to do something. Um, but it really, it's sort of, I've talked to my father about this, and he says, one day, very rural school uh, district where, where he was raised, um, and he said, one day, you know, we didn't even have science textbooks, and the next day we had Bunsen burners and microscopes and <laughs> textbooks, and he said, all of a sudden, we had science education, because Sputnik, he says, it was the day after Sputnik went up. Everybody went, wow, we're behind. We have this huge knowledge gap with the Soviets. Um, which was, of course, silly and ahistorical, but that's what we thought. And then it was a missile gap. And so then Kennedy said, let's go to the moon. His advisors, by the way, many of them said, no, 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 let's say we're going to go to Mars, because as long as we're not going to do it, we may as well go big. This is, li this, this is literally true. And Kennedy said, no, no, I mean, we should really try. And they're like, oh, come on. He says, no, we can do it. And they're like, okay, we can't do it. But we did do it, right? For no reason, there is no reason to go to the moon. But it was to show the Soviets that our monkeys are as smart as their monkeys, right? That was the, we can do this. But notice, it was the channeling of human creativity towards a national goal. It's, it's, on one hand, great, liberating, wonderful. If I study aeronautical engineering, I probably want to work on satellites. I'm dying to work on satellites. It would be great to work on satellites. But, you know, should I work on satellites? That's, for instance, spy on the American people. This is what the Greeks were worried about. You educate them, and then they do suspicious things. They take the power, and they use it incorrectly. Right? So it turns out we have lots of engineers who are happy to design things to spy on everybody. This was what the Greeks feared. This is what everybody has feared about education. And you see this all over the world in any number of ways. Another example of this um, is like Iraq. You know, when we invaded Iraq, it turns out Iraq's army, while huge, was worthless. What well, was worthless because if you're Saddam Hussein, you don't want competent officers in your military because what they will do is overthrow you. That's how he came into power. You want incompetent officers, vaguely competent, just competent enough to terrify the local population and to keep your immediate neighbors nervous but not competent enough to actually assault you. And so you want them a little bit educated and skilled, not too educated and skilled. Right? Because of the fear. But the history of this is perfectly clear. The most educated, most skilled colonels in your country overthrow you. It's I mean, this has happened a thousand times. Literally, a, a, it's always a colonel. If I were a dictator, I would never give anybody the rank of colonel. You could be a major, you could be a general, no colonels. I would just eliminate the rank. I think that's the key. But it's, you know, because they're the ones that get the education, they have the experience, and they're well enough known to have support, but they're not so well known that they've already been shot or dealt with in other ways. Um, and, and so the colonels overthrow you. You know, that, this, this is the power and threat of education. Um, and so after the Sputnik crisis, we've been sort of in the Sputnik crisis ever since, really. This is, this is where we are today, in a way. Um, Thomas Friedman, if anybody's read one of his books, sorry about that, ask for your money back. Um, the, the, he, in, in, in the world is flat, he says that uh, we need to have a space race, all-out investment in engineering, science, and technology. And I think, right, we need huge geology colleges. Well, not that kind of science, right? Uh, invertebrate biology, that's the one, no. So they say science, they say technology, they say engineering and math. This is what STEM education is mean. They don't mean it. They mean whatever kind of engineer General Electric wants to hire today. Not yesterday, that was a whole different set of engineering. Nuclear physics for a while, best degree you could get. Then nobody, wanted, nobody would hire them, so nobody got them. Now, nuclear physics kind of cool again. Right? Like all kinds of engineers. But they mean we should be training our citizens for the jobs 
of today. And so if you look at this, if you look um, on the Common Core, this is from the Common Core website, by the way, so I'm not making this up. Uh, the Common Core is a set of high-quality academic standards in mathematics and English language, arts, and literacy. See, this should sound familiar, right? This has been around for 5,000 years. These learning goals outline what a student should know and be able to do at the end of each grade. For years, the academic progress of our nation's students has been stagnant, and we've lost ground to international peers. That is a very dubious claim, by the way. So if you look on this chart, on the other chart I have on back here, high school graduation rate 1900 to 2010, it's only around 1950 that we hit a 50% graduation rate. Um, by the way, women graduating very nearly at the same rate as men because they were early adopters of, of attendance of normal schools. And so it turns out that in the United States, unlike most every other country, women were graduating at very nearly the rate of men the entire time, which is kind of cool, I think. Um, it, not in this chart, but as you can well imagine, blacks and Hispanic not graduating at the same rate. Poor people not graduating at the same rate. So in 1950s, lots of middle class white people were graduating. Other people, eh, not so much. African Americans, about 20%. Um, and then you can see this dramatic upswing. Um, and then depending on who you, who you believe, Today, we're running somewhere around 85%. African Americans, by the way, pretty much caught up. They graduate high school at almost the same rates as, as Caucasians. Hispanics, not so much, um, for various reasons. Of course, many of them migrants, populations, and all these kinds of issues. Um, but again, we've taken over the last, what is that, 50 years, we've dramatically increased the population that is going to school. It's been a massive, it's really an impressive achievement to go from half of your population and very few minorities, you know, pretty, pretty minor amount of minorities, to African Americans graduating at a very high rate, Hispanics graduating at a much higher rate, not as high as everybody else. And so we've expanded the number of people who are getting a high school education to the point where are we going to hit 100%? In America, you are never going to hit 100%. For one reason, there's a lot of people who homeschool their children. There's a lot of private schools. And there's the general American resistance to uh, federal control of education or any kind of state authority. And so we have chaos. I think it's sort of a good chaos. Um, but we have this mix. So it's really not clear. We've really made impressive gains and people who are, who are participating in the educational process. So when you see things that say, oh, if you look in the 50s, the scores were better. If you look in the 60s, the scores were better. Well, sure, but you're sampling a much smaller population. When you begin sampling almost the entire population, it's not a huge surprise that we're not doing a lot better. In fact, what's really surprising is that we're doing about the same. That's what's incredible is we've dramatically increased the number of people who have access to the power of literacy, to the opportunity to expand their minds. It's an incredible achievement. Um, but we sort of tear our hairs out because it's not perfect. Well, it's an imperfect world, I think, uh, I notice sometimes. Um, but if you continue on the quote, uh, and, and also the fact that we're losing ground to our international peers is, is dubious at best. What's really happening is our international peers who used to do things like not educate any women have sort of gone, oh, we could educate our citizens in a serious way. And so it's all good. We want them to close the gap. We want people all over the world to be as well educated as we are or better. That's not a bad thing. That's a wonderful thing. Right? It's great that the Chinese are producing millions and millions of more highly educated, highly skilled uh, uh, very well-trained people, and this is going on all over the world. They've closed the gap. Again, not bad, great, wonderful, spectacular. And there is no evidence we're, we're falling behind, by the way. Um, uh, the Common Core is informed by the highest, most effective standards from states across the United States and countries around the world. Sure, the standards define the knowledge and skills students should gain throughout their K-12 education in order to graduate high school prepared to succeed in entry-level careers, college courses, and workforce training programs. Welcome to the machine, <laughs> right? 
Jobs, jobs, jobs. Who are you being educated for? You're being educated for a career. There's back to that tension. You're being educated to be a scribe, to work for the priest, or the pasha, or the emperor. Because right? they, they need these people. And we, we do need educated people. But who's choosing? Now this crazy thing happens. But by the way, Common Core is falling apart. So, so you know, if, if, you, if you're opposed to Common Core, don't worry about it. It's dying. And it's dying because there's 14,000 school systems, school districts in the United States, and everybody's going, we don't like this. And some people love it, and some people hate it. Some people don't know what the hell it is. Uh, and it's all this German drum. But just so you know, this has been the education system of the United States since, eight, since Thomas Jefferson. What should we do? We don't know. Wah! <laughs> right? That's, and, and we just and we've been doing this. So if, if, if you've been in the education system or around it for the last couple of years, we had uh, it, just in my lifetime, relatively short, we've had the film strip education movement. People remember this? Well, oh, we're going to have film strips for everything. This was great. And filmed for, for like three years. It was a film. Whatever we were doing, we had a film strip. Bing, turn the page. Bing, turn the page. It was ridiculous. And then we SRA were these guided reading manuals that we had, and you filled them out, and you did the forms, you did, and you moved color. You were like silver and brown and yellow and gold and purple, and oh, I'm a red, and you're a silver. I mean, you're not very good. You know, so these weird levelings of things. Uh, I mean, we had movies, we had all the educational movies until they realized that movies are incredibly expensive to produce and they kept making stupid ones. So they got rid of that. And then, I mean, it was just one real, then all the whole testing thing that's begun, right? The, 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 the Common Core is just the most extreme example of our fetish with testing things um, for no uh, apparent reason. But the idea is we say, okay, we're training people for jobs. We're going to jobs. Well, what jobs? Which jobs? I mean, we're a country of 300 million people. There's a lot of jobs, a lot of different jobs. Nobody knows what jobs people are training for. Um, and so, and if you ask people, this is one of the things that we mess up completely. And it, but it is a, the perfect example of this history of education. Um, right now in the United States, if UW is a perfect example, the state of Washington pays about 4% of the budget of the University of Washington. 96% of their budget is not from the state of Washington. It's extraordinary. It should be the university located in Washington. <laughs> the university loosely affiliated with the state it happens to be located in. Right? Some, some name like that. It, 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 that should be the name of the school. Because it receives basically no funding from the state. It's an incredibly small percentage of their budget. Um, so who's paying for it? Well, right now who's paying for it, a lot of it are the students. And so what the students do is they go to college and they don't say, I want a job. That's the Thomas Friedman model. That's the Common Core model. But they say, look, I've got some education. I have some ideas. I have some interests. And if I'm footing the bill, I'm going to produce or pursue the education I want. See, and this is the tension. They're like, wow. They, some schools are even saying, we want to charge differential rates to the, to, the, to the students because often they choose the wrong majors. <laughs> right? How do we encourage students to pursue the correct majors? Well, see, this is the thing. Almost every student today has a job. Many of them work. So they don't want a job. They have jobs. They've had jobs. They've worked already. They want a better job. They want the job they want. And if nobody decides tomorrow, they say, if everybody says, I don't want to go into engineering, Thomas Friedman can jump up and down all he wants and wave his arms about. But it's not going to change anything if, because who's paying for it? See, they've got enough education to say, I realize I don't want to do that. I want to do this. And some students love engineering, some students love math, some students love French, some people, students love everything. It's a great big mix. The counterexample to this is a program that Malaysia ran called the Malaysia 2020 program. I think it's still going, I, I'm not sure about that, I should have checked. But it was going for years and the goal was in 2020, not too long from now, uh, they would produce a second generation of uh, engineers, computer scientists, all the technology people they needed 
to compete with China and the United States. They wouldn't have to import brains, and they wouldn't lose their brains to overseas. So it was an attempt to become sort of intellectually self-sufficient, and then to actually generate excess intellectual capacity that they could use for, for various things. And in this program, it worked like this. And by the way, if you want, a, your country says, we need a specific thing, this is how you get it. It's not complicated. They went generally to poor families. It was an open competition. And they said, look, if your children, men and women, it was mixed, wish to get a free, 100% paid books, room, board tuition to the College of the United States, and a guaranteed job at an incredibly high salary if they graduate successfully, please sign here. <laughs> and it turns out lots and lots and lots of them signed. Because, wow, that is a good deal. And they did not ask them what subject they wanted to study. This was not, please tell us the career you're interested in. This was a, you will be an electrical engineer, you will be a satellite engineer, you'll be a computer scientist, you'll be, you know, whatever it was they wanted. And they had slots, they had so many slots. People were killing to get those. So it, it really, if we want to produce something, that's all you have to do. But what's weird and crazy and wonderful about our system is we produce world-class everything without doing that. We let people choose, and it turns out a lot of people just decide they're interested in computers and technology and engineering and math and languages and cryptology and archaeology and just everything. But, but again, we, it's so nerve-wracking. What if people choose the wrong thing, <laughs> right? And so this, this weird tension, again, it remains there all the time. You want an educated population, First you wanted a couple of scribes, and you wanted a couple more scribes, and then pretty soon you needed thousands of scribes. And now it turns out you need everybody. But when you, everybody starts reading and everybody starts writing, everybody gets ideas. And they start writing literature because they enjoy it. And then they start writing Pulp Fiction because they enjoy that even more. <laughs> people, people are always up in arms about like whatever today is, Fifty Shades of Grey. Or, well, that was the second thing they wrote down. I mean, really, you learn to write, you take some notes at the, at the um, you know, there at the temple, and then you take a few, you write a few lines of poetry, and then some of the earliest poetry we have is like, uh, this is a great it's a sort of erotic poem from ancient uh, Egypt about this young woman who says, oh, my boyfriend is going to ride by, and I'm going to put on my thinnest sort of cotton blouse and dip myself in the river and then rise <laughs> as she goes by. <laughs> You know, and you're like, well, there it is, wet t-shirt contest from 4,000 years ago, right? So, it, yeah, it, I mean, this, this is, so that's wrong, and so we have to censor that. See, they're using their education in the wrong way because they're thinking bad thoughts, and they're thinking thoughts we don't like. Pop culture is crap because it's all these literate people reading the wrong books. Well, maybe it isn't. Right, if you can read, you're pretty damn literate. If you're reading for pleasure, this is an extraordinarily high level of literacy. But we feel compelled to say, yes, but you're reading the wrong things. We always want to steer that impulse to the right place. And it's true, we do need to, because again, I think it's bad that we have all these uh, you know, satellite engineers who are happy to design stuff for the National Security Agency to spy on us. It doesn't seem to bother them at all. I would like to think it would bother them a little bit. But again, there it is. It's the freedom and the power of education. So when you think about education, when you hear these news reports about the Common Core and these ridiculous things that they say, the standards that they come up with that are related to nothing, um, remember it is this just virtually unanswerable tension that is inherent in the idea. Education, to draw forth what is in you, to nurture, to raise, to empower, it really is one of the greatest things in history. The capacity of the average person to read in the world today it is, is, is just <clears throat> astonishing. It's transformative. The fact that, that you know, leaders feel the need to lie and mislead us 
They didn't even have to bother before. <laughs> right? It's only because we're vaguely literate that they have to do that. Like, oh, we gotta say something. <laughs> right? This is, this is newish. It's powerful. But with that power comes the double fear. One, you're going to use it incorrectly. And sometimes we do. Right? The Prussian education model didn't lead anywhere good in Prussia. Right? This didn't have a good end. It wasn't a happy conclusion. Um, but in other places, it has worked. And so you see this tension now all over the world. You see it in China, where you know they're trying to sort of, they, they, I think just every other day, on even number days, they free things up. On odd number days, they crack down on things. And they go, no, let's free it. No, let's crack down. Let's, uh, and they just don't know what to do. But you saw this in China and every, elsewhere 2,000 years ago. This is what the Taoists and Buddhists were doing. Almost all your major literate Taoists were Confucianists. They were trained in the Confucian. To be literate in China meant you were a Confucianist. And so when they talk about wandering in the woods and all this, what they mean is I'm not hanging out in the palace anymore. I'm not working for the man. <laughs> Forget working for the man. That's not what it's about. I, I've, I've left that. I've taken this education, these capacities, and I'm not steering it towards the betterment of the state. I'm steering it towards the betterment of me. And this is, this, this is, and then of course there's that tension. Right? No, you should be, look, the state invested all this money in you to train you, to make you this skilled uh, scribe or engineer or manager or general, and you're just packing up and say, I'm going to go in the mountains and drink tea and write poetry? I don't think so. <laughs> but that's what a lot of them did. They left, they left the system. And there was this constant moving in and out because it is inherent. It's there. This, this, it can't go away. Um, again, we'll, we'll keep struggling with this. Why should you go to school? Well, to get a job to make money. A job I like, that I enjoy, that makes me feel good, that makes me feel powerful and, 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 and invigorates me. See, those are sort of different goals. And uh, we just waffle back and forth between them. And then finally is the notion of indoctrination. Indoctrination is to channel someone's mind, to limit it, to attempt to deform it, and say, do not follow the channel that is from within you. Do not take the tools that you've been given, which is really all education is, is, is the giving of tools to somebody to use for whatever they will. The indoctrination is the attempt to, to, to mold that mind early, like I said, to break the arms of a child so that they can beg more efficiently into unnatural channels. And, and, and I experienced this directly. Um, when the wall came down in, in, East, in, in Germany, um, later when I was in graduate school, the exchange program was set up with East, well, formerly East German. We had some former East German students, and, and my class worked with one student in particular. And we would sit in, in, in coffee shops with her after class, and, and we would talk about what we we're supposed to be writing in our papers. And she would say, what does the professor want me to say? And we would say, we don't know. What do you think? Well, how am I supposed to know what to say if I don't know what they want me to say? And we would just go around that house for hours trying to explain to her desperately that, look, the professor just wants you to say what you think. Say it clearly. And, and she'll say, but how am I supposed to know what to think if the professor won't tell me? That's indoctrination. And it's a little scary when you encounter it. It, 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 it's a little terrifying because it, it's a mind that's been so limited and constrained that has learned that the, the path to advancement is the correct answer on the multiple choice test. One of these answers is correct. If you get the right one, you get a cherry. If you get the wrong one, no good for you. Right? That sort of limiting and narrowing. But fundamentally, and the history of this is pretty clear, the, the education as it expands raises people up. And as you raise people up, they become more problematic. And so then you try and press them down, and they don't like that. And this dynamic, I don't think, is going to go away anytime soon. So when you see education debates, you read articles about it, you know, in the back of your mind say, well, where's the power going? Who's being raised up? Who's being limited? Whose opportunities are being reinforced, and whose are being sort of tamped down? 
Who benefits from this education? The student, the institution, the state, the company? And a lot of things that are seem confusing and vague and vexing become clear immediately, because that is the history of education. So thank you very much.